Welcome to a brand new show from MarketScale called Salary Capped, where we take a look at the business side of sports. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. And for our first episode, we're going to take a visit down to South Beach for a look at how the city of Miami is preparing for the Super Bowl. And we'll also visit with a sports business professor with a background in baseball on the impact of the Astros cheating scandal. But before we get to all of that, we're going to have the tip off. The sports world was obviously rattled by the news of the death of NBA superstar Kobe Bryant, who died in a helicopter crash along with eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter Gianna. But one of the things that stood out to me about the response to the news as it spread throughout social media was the way that it seemed to touch people from all walks of life. Not just sports fans, not just Lakers fans, not just people from LA, but people all around the world and people who had wide-ranging interests and a variety of backgrounds. Kobe Bryant really came to mean something more to people than just being one of the best basketball players to ever play the game. He transcended his sport and he became an even larger figure on the global stage. And he spoke multiple languages, had wide-ranging business interests and embodied a work ethic that few others on the planet could possess, but he entered that rarefied era of superstars that only have to go by one name, right? Like Tiger, Jordan, Magic, and you know even Shaq, something like that. But Kobe has now entered that same stratosphere of those types of guys. And after his retirement from the game of basketball, he took that famous work ethic and what has become known as the Mamba mentality, and he applied it to business and, and different interests like that. He formed an investment partnership with Jeff Steibel and and became an investor in companies like Epic Games, the company that created Fortnite, and Body Armor, which is a sports drink for athletes. And he created a media company to tell stories around the sports landscape. He even formed the Mamba Sports Academy, which was his intended destination on the morning his helicopter crashed. Venture capitalist Chris Saka, who you might know from his stint on Shark Tank, and he's somebody that Kobe sought a lot of advice from when it came to investments. And Chris has worked at Google in the past and has invested in the majority of the tech companies that you probably interact with on a regular basis, companies like Twitter and Uber and others. He had this to say about Kobe Bryant, and this kind of resonated uh, quite a bit just when it came to Kobe's famous work ethic. Chris said, there will be a lot of takes, but not sure I will ever know anyone else with his work ethic which is really impressive when you think about the tech sector and when you think of Silicon Valley, you think of a lot of people that work notoriously hard and work long hours and things like that. And that's what will always stick with me about Kobe Bryant. He seemed to have embraced his post-basketball life with as much fervor as he approached refining his jump shot or driving to the rim or just winning in general. And whether it was being a father to his four daughters or building a business empire, he did it with that Mamba mentality. And if there's one thing about him that I hope I can emulate, it's that same intensity. I want to close with this quote from Kobe that I really liked. Um, One time he said, the most important thing is to try and inspire people so that they can be great at whatever they want to do. And it's pretty clear that Kobe did that while he was here on this earth. And he's continued to do that now with his absence. That's it for the tip-off. Coming up in the first half, I'm going to have a conversation with Rodney Barreto. He's the chairman of Miami's Super Bowl host committee. We're going to talk a little bit about how Miami is preparing to host the Super Bowl for the 11th time and how the business community of Miami has really rallied behind this effort and what the impact of hosting a Super Bowl is on hospitality, on the food and beverage industries. And so lots to talk about with Rodney. So that's coming up on the first half of the show, coming up next here on Salary Capped. Give me a sense of, on a scale of one to 10, how excited are you right now? Well, I'm very excited. You know, it's funny, um, 
people ask me how long have I been working with Super Bowls. I've been a volunteer for 31 years. Uh, Dick Anderson, the former All-Pro safety of the Miami Dolphins, was the first chairman of, of a Super Bowl ever committee. And he asked me to help him 31 years ago. And here I am 31 years later. This will be the third chair, uh, third Super Bowl as a chairman. So it's exciting, exciting times. We, we, we know how to do it. It's our record-breaking Super Bowl for Miami. So it's a lot of fun. What makes Miami such a great place to host the Super Bowl? You know, it's, it's a, going there for the 11th time, like you mentioned. What makes it such an awesome location? A couple things. One, A, we know what we're doing. Uh, two, we have the infrastructure in place. So it's like when you, when you host the Super Bowl, you don't have to build any, you know, hardened structures or anything like that. Uh, we're, we're big. We're used to big uh, um, um, concerts. We're used to big conventions here, so we know how to do things right. Of course, the weather is always great. Uh, you know, we're we're surrounded by water. Um, the weather is always something that uh, you know kind of, kind of plays in with the game. If you look at the last three, I mean, I was at Minnesota three years ago. It was minus twelve degrees. Oh no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so we're doing well today. Today's a balmy seventy-two. You know, and it's beautiful, and uh, and and hopefully that'll be what the weather will be like uh, come Super Bowl Sunday. Absolutely, you have a beautiful, brand new stadium there in Miami as well, which uh, surely played kind of a large factor in making sure that uh, securing that eleventh uh, trip there for the Super Bowl. Absolutely, you know, if it wasn't for Steve Ross, uh, basically uh, swimming upstream and just he, he he tried to get public financing, it didn't work. He decided, okay, I'm going to write the check. And he's well into 550 million in, in uh, renovations. But in essence, we have a brand new stadium now, yeah. and it uh, it will it'll go compete with all these new billion dollar stadiums. It's actually it's a gorgeous stadium, and uh, I think it's going to open a lot of people's eyes. So really, thanks to Steve Ross, is why we're back in the rotation. Absolutely. Well, as much as the Super Bowl is about the game itself, it's also about everything that goes on around the Super Bowl. And it's really a week-long event kind of leading up and kind of culminating with the game. So just talk about how big of an opportunity this is for the business community of Miami to really get to show off the city, be it restaurants, hotels, everything that comes along with that. You know, it's, you're, you're exactly right. And, and uh, you know, I often tell people, you know, that uh, the game is just one little aspect of the whole week. And if you, know, you think about it, the game is for four hours. And, and But it's a week-long celebration. It's people flying into your airport, staying in your hotels, using your restaurants. It's corporate America that's best. They're here to entertain their top clients, their top customers, their top employees. Uh, it is just a, an open checkbook. It's just amazing. The, and, and, then, you know, and then we look back and we say, okay, what's different than 10 years ago? Ten years ago, Uber didn't exist, Lyft didn't exist, Airbnb didn't exist. We have a bunch of emerging neighborhoods that didn't exist ten years ago in Miami. We have a new train that runs from Palm Beach County to downtown Miami that's new and different ten years ago. We have a tunnel over to our port of Miami that separates Miami from Miami Beach. We just have all these new things going on, new restaurants, new hotels. We're, I think people are going to be shocked, you know, uh, Miami is not the hottest city in America. It's the hottest city in the world, and everybody wants to be here. Well, it's exciting that you have the opportunity to show it off coming up soon with uh, so many visitors coming in. And I know that what people see on the surface is just a little bit of the work that goes into it, and there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes that nobody really knows about. So give us an idea of the size and the scope of everything that goes on below the surface that really helps pull off a week like the Super Bowl. 
Well, so we have a we have a committee that's uh, it's an NGO, non-government uh, organization that holds the contract with the NFL. So we're executing that contract with the NFL, which calls for hotels for the teams and calls for certain sites for training, calls for a certain rate on hotel rooms, uh, and 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 then uh, calls for certain uh, um, um, uh, facilities to host their like their uh, their media platform, the, the, tape, the, the tape of the NFL, the uh, NFL experience. We're doing Super Bowl Live, which we didn't do 10 years ago, so we're basically having a week-long free event to the public with all kinds of activations that you can experience. Not everybody's going to be able to go to the game. The stadium only holds 65,000. So uh, all these other people, we anticipate about 200,000 people will be here in all to party and to entertain and, and to be part of all the festivities. So you, if you stop and think about the multiplier, uh, the last three cities, their their multiplier was north of four hundred million dollar impact. We believe that in in the realm here, maybe more. We've hired an economist to do that for us, a third party economist to to kind of go out in the field, to be out there, to 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 take the temperature, to to come up with the numbers for us. So it's going to be interesting uh, to see all that. But you know, it's just amazing. I mean, typically if a hotel was getting Three hundred fifty dollars a room night. They're probably getting close to a thousand dollar room night for us. Super Bowl is amazing, right? So it's just it's amazing, and and you know it's great for business. And uh, I think what happens is a lot of cities found out what Miami's known all along: the Super Bowls are great for your community. Absolutely. Yeah. And you talked about all the advancements and all the ways that Miami has improved in the last 10 years. And that's really exciting just to have that opportunity uh, to kind of show off the business community a little bit more. Give us a sense. I know I read a little bit about you kind of leading up to this interview, and I know that you were formerly a cop. So tell me a little bit about the operation of security and that collaboration that has to take place between local law enforcement, the NFL, and I'm guessing outside entities that all come together to make sure that the event is secure and uh, that an event this size uh, stay safe the entire time. So yeah, I certainly will. I mean, this is what they call a Steer One event, and that's a, a national uh, title for what this event is. The the um, the President Trump, in this case, he nominates a federal employee to be his representative, and in this case, he nominated the the FBI uh, the office holder here uh, that runs the office here, and and they're running all federal resources. So there's a lot of uh, Department of Defense resources available to us, Homeland Security resources available for us, things that people are not going to see. Uh, we, then we have a whole collaboration between state and local and, and, and the federal government. And uh, we basically land and sea and everything you can think of and in between. So, uh, yes, we, we're very fortunate. Miami-Dade Police Department, it's about a, a 3,300 sworn officer police department. So it's not a, it's a very sizable police department. Mm-hmm. Has extensive experience in big events like this. In fact, the gentleman who ran the uh, security uh, for the uh, Super Bowl in 2010 has retired, but I brought him back out of retirement to be my uh, my chairperson on my committee for security. And, uh, you know, we're doing all the right things. Or It's a big collaboration, a lot about communication and and we've gone through all kinds of drills, and uh, everybody's ready. Um, we're, we've been blessed in the past that uh, we've ever, never had a major incident. But you know, you can't uh, you know sleep on your hands and, and hope that, that, that things aren't going to happen. And certainly, the times are different, and we're well aware, and, and everybody's well aware. So people should feel safe. This is a big event, but you know we're used to big events, and safety is our paramount concern. And we will execute 
all those, you know, uh, right things to do to, to make sure that the public is safe. Absolutely. Well, you're a native of Miami, so just give us a sense of what it's like for you, just as someone that uh, this is your home, to get to play such a role in putting the spotlight on Miami, uh, not just you know around the nation, but really around the world. The world's eyes are going to be on Miami for a week. Just give us a sense of how that feels for you as a native of Miami. You know, it's kind of funny. I always tell people, like, you know, in the early days of the Orange Bowl when the Super Bowl first started, I used to sneak into the game. <laughs> <laughs> So things have changed a lot. No, I'm kidding, but yeah, it's, I listen. I'm beaming with uh, you know with uh, pride. It's my hometown. I'm born and raised here. You know, I've got six other brothers and four sisters, and of course they're all proud of me. But uh, I'm probably their brother and sister. And uh, yeah, this is listen. Miami is a great place. I've watched it grow, grow from a sleepy town to uh, an international city. And uh, you know, we speak about. 200 and something languages a day here in, in Miami. It's just uh, it's just a beautiful place with beautiful people uh, and and a lot of activity and and uh, you, you don't get bored. You don't you don't sit on your hands much here. You know we're, we're very fortunate. We live between the Everglades and the ocean. The stadium is between the Everglades and the ocean. In fact, we're doing a big Everglades to Oceans campaign as part of the Super Bowl committee. So we're highlighting the environment we live in. The ocean Ocean Conservancy came in. They're highlighting the fact that they don't want plastics in waters, uh, which is great. We've done several beach cleanups, so it's, it's you know it's important. Uh, you know it, it, you know it, it's it's the setting for this game is just going to blow people away. And Bayfront Park is probably the first time ever in Super Bowl history that they'll have a a Super Bowl live on the waterfront uh, in Miami. That's so. that's going to be incredible. I, I cannot wait to see that. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you kind of mentioned this a little bit that uh, wildlife uh, preservation is something near and dear to your heart, as well as a campaign that you're running to combat uh, sex trafficking and human trafficking at the Super Bowl. And so tell us a little bit more about those efforts that you're undertaking just to uh, further these causes. Well, you know, I, I had the fortunate opportunity. I was appointed by Governor Bush and Governor Chris, now Governor DeSantis. I chaired the Fish and Wildlife Commission for the state of Florida, where our primary responsibility is all the wealth, uh, all the uh, rules and regulations for fish and wildlife. Uh, so uh, I'm intimately knowledgeable. I'm a big outdoorsman. I think it's important. I think a lot of people come to Florida because of the wildlife and the outdoors. So uh, we've been able to kind of thread the needle with uh, the Super Bowl and the wildlife and the fishing and, and uh, the Everglades and our environment here, why it's so fresh and why it means so much to us. So that's, that's been uh, something that's very fulfilling. We've also, one thing that we've doing too is uh, the human trafficking, sex trafficking campaign, something that we did do 10 years ago. In fact, we didn't talk about it 10 years ago. Hmm. So this is really on the forefront. We have a huge campaign with our state attorney, Kathy Rundle Fernandez, our governor, the governor's wife, uh, the lieutenant governor, and we are we uh, our mayor here. We we are uh, we have a campaign. We have billboards going up. We we have a hotline. We have a bricks and mortar facility. So if uh, we have to do some kind of intervention or someone needs our help, we're able to provide safe safe shelter for that person and uh, to to uh, be able to do a, do uh, an observation and give them the proper care and help they need. So. Yeah, we're proud of all that. It's uh, you know when you when you say sex trafficking and human trafficking, everybody says, well, a lot of that comes with the big game. Very little bit, a certain portion of it comes with the big game. It's already here, you know, and and so and and every community is confronting this. So 
we're, we're proud to be part of it. We, we're, we, you know, we want to have our impact. And, and those are some of the, the, the intangibles that come with the big game itself. And, of course, we're doing several things in the community. We, we're, we're putting artificial turf fields in three inner city schools. Uh, those, are, those, are, those things will be here long after the last whistle blows. Uh, we we doing a lighting project along the bayfront, so we're doing some really neat things that we, we're fortunate to to able to work with the NFL Foundation uh, and local foundations to to pull these things off and the local governments. Uh, so yeah, we're excited about all the those things that are are going to be part of the community once the Super Bowl comes and goes. Big thanks to Rodney Barreto for joining us here on Salary Capped. Okay, coming up after the break, we're going to talk a little baseball, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be a maverick of marketing? I'm Shannon Maverick. Join me every Monday at 9 a.m. for the Maverick of Marketing radio show. Each week, I'll be chatting with a different marketing expert to find out what makes them a true maverick. Taking risks is being a maverick. If you aren't learning, you're going to get left behind. You can either contribute to the problem or you can solve the problem. To listen, visit marketscale.com slash industries and click on MarketScale Radio at the top of the page. Stop running with the herd and start being a true maverick of marketing. All right, coming up next, we're going to be talking to John Allgood, the assistant professor and academic director of the Executive Master of Science in Sports Business program at Temple University. And he's also been very involved in baseball over the course of his career, working with several minor league clubs. And we're going to talk about the fallout from the Houston Astros cheating scandal that caused three managers to lose their jobs as well as a general manager. So a lot of fallout coming from that. So we're going to talk a business angle from that as well as the Major League Baseball angle. So how is it affecting Major League Baseball? both on the field and off. So that's coming up next right here on Salary Capped. So I started in 1995 uh, working for the organization, AAA organization in Oklahoma City. And then by uh, 2005, I was named uh, executive director slash general manager of the team and, and was part of minor league baseball in Oklahoma City for, um, you know, 15 years. Uh, we were affiliated with the Texas Rangers. I was also part of the uh, marketing committee of AAA baseball and served in some different posts uh, in minor league baseball as well. That's awesome. So, hey, so baseball has dealt with its share of scandals over the years, be it uh, betting on baseball uh, back in the shoeless Joe Jackson days or even Pete Rose and then steroids in the 90s and that whole uh, that whole issue. Where does this rank in terms of scandals and kind of issues that Major League Baseball has dealt with over the years? It's a great question because um, I actually talked about this in my classes at Temple on Tuesday is, um, you know, stealing signs has been part of the game for, you know, as long as the game has been around mm-hmm. baseball. And so, you know, I asked the uh, rhetorical question is, you know, why, why is it a problem now? People have been stealing signs for a long time. And I think it really just has to come back to, um, you know, the probably technology of it and the uh, pervasiveness of it. And if you go back and, and look at what the, uh, you know, current commissioner warned 
all the general managers and the owners of baseball teams, MLB teams, over the last 18 months. He said, you guys got to stop doing this. And uh, I think the reason why the penalties have come down so harsh is because he warned them and they continued to do it. And that's why I think three managers and a general manager lost their job is because the commissioner warned them. And they, they kind of snubbed their nose at him and said, we're going to keep doing what we do. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. These were pretty harsh penalties. And, you know, A.J. Hinch, uh, the manager of the Houston Astros, and Jeff Luno, the uh, the general manager, uh, both were suspended for a year. The Astros also were fined $5 million and lost their first and second round picks in yep. 2020 and 2021. What do you think of those penalties that were handed down by the Astros? From my perspe- or for the Astros, from my perspective anyways, uh, it seems like they were trying to set a benchmark. Rob Manfred, the, uh, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, set a benchmark of sorts to try to stop this behavior before it continues. Yeah, I, I think he tried to, but you know, I think I could argue both sides of it. Not that I'm want to, you know, waffle from giving a side, but you know, I, I think you could look at it as being excessive, but you could also look at it as being not excessive mm-hmm. because there were what two of the last three uh, World Series were won by teams that were cheating. Um, and what does that say? You know, I, I feel for the Dodgers when it comes to this because. We don't know if they were cheating. I don't think they were. We haven't heard any allegations. But you know, you you have teams that won world championships based on cheating. And where does that you know where does that lie when it comes to this? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, if the um, if the penalties are excessive or not excessive. I hope, as a fan of baseball, that you know this that, you know keeps other teams from cheating. You've heard that old adage, you know, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, something along those lines. And and as baseball fans, I think we'd all like to know that what we're watching is genuine and get to, you know, as you invite fans in to watch the game, that what they're seeing is really happening, I suppose. So there's kind of this this war between wanting to believe what you're watching is genuine and also recognizing that spitballs have been a thing for as long as baseball has been around. And so how do you kind of reconcile those two almost competing ideas when it comes to the game? That's a great question. So in my classes, what I teach is, you know, the reason why sport is so unique is um, when you go to a game and you hoped anything can happen, right? You Mm -hmm. really don't know the outcome, right? You don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's what makes March Madness so great. That's what makes college football so great when you have upsets. But when you start having the element of cheating in sport, then, you know, the odds change. The outcomes change because it's slanted to the cheaters. So that's why cheating doesn't belong at all. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. Now, this, this kind of represents almost a new era of cheating, especially in Major League Baseball, because before it was all sleight of hand. It was things that kind of happened uh, out in the open, but they were just sneakier about it. In this case, this involved technology, which yep. kind of brings about a, a new era almost of trying to bend the rules and break the rules in baseball. Does that worry you at all, that as technology advances, that teams are going to continue to try to maybe push the envelope as far as that goes? Well, I think they're going to try. I mean, like you said, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. I think it goes back to that. Everyone wants a competitive advantage. Technology is always going to be there. I, I I think the bigger problem is, is when did baseball become uh, not a human game? When, hmm. did it, when did it change from being, you know, the scouts? I, I love Moneyball. And, uh, and the book, the movie, everything about it. Um, but there's also that element of the human factor, right? It's, it's, you know, the scouts, it's the coaching, it's the players, it's the catcher changing the signs with the pitcher. If it, if it starts slanting too much technology and cheating through technology, do we lose the human element of the game? Even, even the robot strike zone, right? 
Yeah. What, what about that? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point that there is this, I think that's kind of been part of the beauty of the game over the years is just that it is, you know, performed by humans and that there's going to be errors involved in that and that sort of thing. Um, moving forward, if you're Major League Baseball, how do you, uh, how would you try to paint the image of the game to try to lure fans kind of back in? Anybody that feels at all jaded about the sport after uh, the scandals of the last 20 years or so? Well, the beauty of baseball is it's, uh, there's no clock, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I know Major League Baseball is trying to speed things up with the uh, pitcher's clock and all that stuff. But the beauty of baseball is it's a, a family environment. You're, you get a chance. There's no clock. You get a chance to um, have a uh, conversation with people around you. Um, there's the human element of it. Anything, if I'm the commissioner, I, I'm doing the same thing that he's doing right now is I'm going in and saying you cannot do this anymore because you're going to ruin the game. I mean, if you look at it, look at attendance across the board. Uh, so, when it, again, one of the things that I teach is how do we consume sport now? It's just not about going to the game, right? It's not about attendance. It's just not about buying tickets. It's about how you consume the game. Do I watch it on TV? Do I um, you know, use my smartphone to follow stats? Am I texting people? Sure. If you take out that human element of it, then where does the relationships and that I share with other folks that are watching the game myself, consuming the game myself, where does that go? If we believe the outcome is already dictated because of cheating, we're going to lose interest really quick. So you, there has to be a very strong stance. And frankly, I think the commissioner needs to do more. So, John, one of the angles that I'm really curious about is the angle of business, I suppose, for teams. So how does this affect sponsorship deals, ticket sales, um, maybe even viewership numbers and that sort of thing. Um, how can a team rebound from this? But how, how do you picture this affecting a team like the Astros? Well, I have a theory uh, that uh, it's called fan identification. So the more a fan identifies with the team, the more time they're going to spend with the team, which means the more money they're going to spend with the team. If the fans of the Astros don't identify with the team, meaning that they don't fit to their certain values, meaning cheaters, um, or you know, authentic baseball that's being played on a on a level that's fair to everyone, mm-hmm. they're not going to follow the team anymore. Which means they're going to stop spending their money on that. And if they stop spending their money on that, that means the sponsors are going to stop spending money because that means their impressions are going to be lower and the return of their investment, the ORI, is going to be lower. So it really goes back to fan identification. If the, if the fans of the Astros don't continue to honestly believe that the Astros are competing on an honest level, they're going to lose them. That's all we have for today's show. So before I get out of here, let me give you the final score. Super Bowl fans are predicted to eat 1.4 billion chicken wings during Super Bowl weekend, according to the National Chicken Council. I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. I'll see you next time.